Welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. In this podcast, we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to help you navigate the infinitely developing, renewable world of steel. Welcome to Steel Stories. I'm your host, David Kirkpatrick. With today's episode, we're unveiling a special new series within Steel Stories. So welcome to the CEO edition. Periodically, U.S. Steel CEO David Burrett will be your host for his engaging conversations with leading thinkers in industry, politics, and business. In this inaugural episode, Dave sits down with a distinguished expert in all three fields, Harvard Business School professor Willie Shee. It's an enlightening discussion that sets the tone for what's to come in the CEO edition. For you many steel industry aficionados and devoted fans of the OG steel stories, our regular programming isn't going anywhere. This CEO edition just broadens our usual content to help you to even better understand the steel industry story and steel's role in the ongoing energy transition. So let's dive into this compelling conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. I'm delighted to have with me here Dr. Willie Shee. He's a Harvard professor. And I got to tell you, he's got all kinds of degrees. He's got a, a few at MIT. He's got a, a degree, a PhD at the University of California at Berkeley. And it seems like when I was looking at his resume, Dr. Shee, you've worked a lot of places just about everywhere. I think every big company, you've had some touch points on it. And we'll make sure everybody gets an opportunity to see that robust re resume. But but today, you know, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about producing prosperity, why America needs a manufacturing renaissance. And want to dig right into that here. I have to tell you, Dr. Shi, first off, I had an earnings call and then also an interview on Bloomberg, and I must have stolen your line because uh, where I, the president actually quoted me where he said, that the uh, president of U.S. Steel called the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, a manufacturing renaissance act, which is, of course, a byline in your book. And I have to tell you, I love it. I love what you're saying here. And I got to know, first off, what inspired you to write this thing? Well, David, first of all, thanks for having me. What inspired me on this book is uh, I've worked in the industry for 28 years, okay? And when I was growing up, uh, I always learned the importance of having engineering and product development right next to the factory because a lot of the innovation that goes on in manufacturing, you know, you have this uh, loop going back and forth that connects those two, right? I'm going to I'm going to come up with a new design or I'm going to come up with a new process and then I'm going to go implement it. And what you want is you want that fast cycle, right? Uh, and I worked in industry during the entire decade of the 80s and the 90s and the first part of the 2000s, you know, and that was when we started offshoring this stuff, okay? And, and it always puzzled me in my head. It's like, now, wait a minute, didn't we, under, didn't we learn, didn't the de Japanese teach us that? For example, the 1980s, the value of having those things nearby, because what goes on in manufacturing is such an important part of the innovation process. Okay, so then I got to the business school. Actually, as part of my job talk at the business school, I was talking about 
uh, some of this offshoring that was going on because it was just ramping up at that time. So as part of my job talk, and then when I uh, came to the school, you know, I really started asking that question more. It's like, isn't there a price that we as a country will pay by separating those two? Now, part of the price we paid is we fill the sky with airplanes. And, you know, if you're going to make, uh, you know, smartphones and tablets and stuff in China, then, you know, we saw companies who would literally send people over six months at a time. I, I was one of those people in the early 2000s who I, you know, there was one year I went over 16 times. And it's like, now, wait a minute, didn't we learn about the importance of that connection? And that was the whole motivation, first for a paper that my colleague Gary Pisano and I wrote uh, in 2009, actually, and that's what led to that book. Okay, so I've, I've been thinking about this problem for decades. A actually, I had a, a representative in the House of Representatives call me up and was asking me about that book, and he said, wait a minute, <laughs> you wrote this in 2009, right? And, you know, this was a long time ago. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm just saying now the, the chickens have come home to roost. Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's, a, it's a new book for me. And I know it doesn't have some of the most recent things in there, but I, I think we'll get into those in a bit. But, you know, one of the things that you said in the book, actually, it's it's uh, it's um, marked it here on, on, on page 70, where it says, take the Apple iPad. It falls into the pure product um, uh, innovation quadrant that you talk about here. So it, it, kind of the theme of the book is I take it is manufacturing is critical to innovation. So could you could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and uh, Dave, the concept here is like early on when you're first putting a product into production, right? That's when you have this uh, tight linkage, right? When something is very mature, uh, then, okay, maybe I can have it a little more distant. But early on when you're doing a lot of that refinement, uh, that's when it really pays to have engineering close to production, right? Because that's when you find out what can be done and what can't be done. Apple actually is a very good example because uh, when they're bringing new products into production, they have their engineering team all over the factory floor, okay? And uh, uh, because what they're trying to do, and they're famous for this, they're always kind of pushing the limits of what can be done, right? And in cases like that, there's such a tight linkage, okay? And oftentimes when some of their products are late, it's because maybe they're pushing a little too far, but that's how you find out what's doable and what's not. I mean, I think Apple is really a case study of a company who's very good at just pushing a little beyond the limits and then making the limits actually happen, okay? But that requires that tight linkage, and that's why, you know, uh, we tend to discount the value of manufacturing, right? And, and it was really promulgated by a lot of these companies who said, "Hey, wait a minute! I don't, I don't need to have the manufacturing in order to do the assembly, right?" And that was for things like shoes and clothing and a lot of household appliances and things like that, where the stuff is pretty mature, right? It's where I already understand how all those pieces fit together and stuff. So. When it's immature, I need to have a close linkage. As I get more of this stuff regularized, then, you know, maybe I can have it a little more distant. Well, you know, along those lines, when you think about um, Apple, they're they're uh, absolutely a, a global company, right? And we start thinking about 
global trends or mega trends, some people call them. And so we think in terms of deglobalization, decarbonization, and digitization, including artificial intelligence within that realm, kind of a 3Ds type thing. So how do you see the, these things influencing uh, uh, manufacturing? What's the impact on manufacturing, particularly in the United States? Well, you know, I, I think we have been through what I often call a golden age of globalization, right? When you really look at uh, from the late 1990s until maybe the early 2010s, we went through a period where you know, it was actually the tail end of a period where we saw decreasing trade barriers, uh, more kind of everything was going to be more homogeneously, uh, more homogeneous politically and so on. Okay. And people said, wow, gee, I can, I can take advantage of labor arbitrage. I can move production of labor intensive goods to areas where I had low labor costs. And it was coupled with a boom in relatively low-cost transportation, container shipping, low-cost air cargo, that allowed us to disperse all these supply chains all over the place. Okay, now, digitization helped a lot of that just in terms of uh, enabling kind of more of this division of labor, moving pieces to different uh, parts of the world, especially di digital products where, you know, have very standard interfaces and stuff and relatively mature techniques that could do that. Okay, now what we've really learned starting in the global economic crisis, but uh, more in the middle, you know, 2016, uh, and then leading into the pandemic, what we've learned is that there was a fragility that came with that, right? By having these far flung dependencies, you know, a lot of global supply chains were really built on the basis of reliable, predictable shipment of commodities back and forth, okay? And we found out a lot of those assumptions haven't turned out to be quite so robust. And the pandemic sort of dialed up the contrast yeah. on, on all of those things, right? And so now we kind of have a snapback, couple that with differences in uh, geopolitics, which were really highlighted by, look what happens when Russia invades Ukraine and what the impact on lots and lots of different supplies. And then people say, well, you know, I can now connect the dots, if you will, on if some other bad geopolitical scenarios uh, happen. Okay, so now what we're seeing, everybody's saying, well, people are talking about decoupling. I think it's more, you know, when when you look at people who have a lot of these far-fung supply chains, it's really more about, I got to be more resilient next time. Now, there's some companies, for example, uh, I always cite Toyota as an example, who uh, learned this lesson a decade before everybody else, right? I mean, the pandemic started in 2020. Toyota learned a, a big lesson in 2011 with the Tohoku East Japan earthquake and tsunami, where they said, wait a minute, we were dependent on a lot of sole source suppliers in this one geographic area around Naka and where the earthquake and tsunami hit. And they they started redefining their supply chains then in terms of, uh, you know, uh, they said, for example, hey, wait a minute, we're sourcing a lot of our chips from the the Pacific Rim, the ring of fire, where not only is it geologically unstable, but there's political risk. And, and and so, but now a lot of other people are saying the same thing. It's like, how do I diversify some of my risk? Okay. So that's, 
that that is a big trend that's reshaping things and of course you know it's it's it is bringing a lot of things closer to home or back home when we say hey there's some also these some of these strategic industries like things associated with decarbonization right maybe it's important that the US really has much more of a hand in manufacturing of those com- strategic commodities rather than be dependent on distant sources, right? So a lot of stuff is changing right now. Yeah, Dr. Shi, you, you mentioned Ukraine, you mentioned the pandemic, you mentioned um, the uh, source of supply from Toyota and the, the supply chain. I know you're a supply chain expert in this area, but there's some other things that have come on, the, you know, the, the uh, infrastructure bill and and now the inflation misnamed reduction act you know i like they like your words i guess the manufacturing renaissance and yeah. I, I put the word act on the end of it but those are that's kind of my opinion it does feel like things are are in a really good place for investing here in the united states as we reset being more resilient so you know, bring us up to date since you wrote the book and some of these things. It it almost sounds like to me it's playing out kind of as you predicted, right? And and how how are the infrastructure bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips Act, how are all these things influencing uh, things in in manufacturing in the USA? Well, initially I had some doubts. Okay, but uh, between the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA and the CHIPS Act, and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, okay? What we've really done is uh, we have tried to, uh, a lot of people would say level the playing field, or you know, I would say change the tilt and the playing field a little bit, okay? Because what we uh, historically have found you know, the, the U.S. is a high-cost location, right? Whether you're making chips or you're making steel uh we have relatively higher labor costs we have uh uh higher higher standards in many respects that lead to cost i mean that is in in effect why we have a lot of this uh trade where you know we draw in things from lower cost regions now i think one of the motivations behind ira and chips and iija as well is we've also started to look more at, well, why are some of these costs different? And in some cases, you know, a lot of it is subsidies or industrial policy in other countries. Okay, so if you say, you know, uh, I'm sourcing a country that has industrial policy that pours a lot of subsidies into areas and, uh, you know, that makes their products cheaper, well, that means... Uh, we go source from there, we lose jobs, we lose, you know, the value capture for making the products as well. Okay, so there's a big component, especially in chips, but also IRA, that uh, says, I'm going to try to re-tilt that playing field so that it's a little more uh, beneficial. Now, initially, I said, well, we'll see what's going to happen. But, you know, if you look at what's happened in the last year, the level of investment in the U.S., it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, when I talk to people in Washington, I say, hey, you know, this is working. Now, the IRA in particular combines what I call supply-side incentives, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There was help 
to manufacturers so that I can help you overcome the cost differentials along with demand side incentives uh, to purchasers of products made domestically that, uh, you know, so now we have is you have demand side incentives pulling product from manufacturers along with supply side incentives helping manufacturers. So one one is pulling and the other is pushing in the IRA. Boy, that's a powerful combination, right? So you see a lot of people saying, okay, I'm going to get, I'm going to offset those cost advantages. We see it in steel products, for example, uh, big time, especially uh, associated with renewable energy projects. Okay. It says, I'm going to now overcome those cost differentials. I'm going to make it more favorable to source in the U.S. Okay, and that's a big change. Right? This, and, and I, I'm sure you're seeing it in steel because, you know, I've always wondered how could how could steel coming out of China be so much cheaper than the U.S. Because I'm buying iron ore at global market prices, right? I'm buying coking coal at global market prices, presumably. I'm buying production equipment at global market prices. How could it cost so much less, right? And so what we see is we see these legislations, uh, these acts that have sought to level that playing field. That That's had a big impact. Yeah, well, I would say we'll get into this whole trade discussion, which we probably shouldn't get into, but it, it's related to that. I mean, the cost differential isn't really that that much, but the price differential is. And so they have an opportunity here to uh, um, participate with unfair trade. We, you know, it used to be the free trade mant mantra. Now, of course, people understand about fair trade and post pandemic and post, uh, you know, chips concerns and, and all the, the shutdowns that we had from a variety of people understand you have to be resilient and you can manip manipulate currency. You can't price low. You can't avoid tariffs by shipping it to other countries like ship to Vietnam and then into Greece or wherever you, you have to follow the rule of law. And so I think we're getting better, much better. And that was great with the Trump administration. It's great with the Biden administration in terms of the improvements they've made with trade. So I'm, I'm, I'm very much in, encouraged by that. But there's another question before we ramp up here. I want to, I know you're on the board of Next Tracker and, and Dan Sugar is a great partner for U.S. Steel. He's very progressive kind of guy in terms of the way he thinks about business and and uh, you know he's very quite eclectic he's, he's uh, you know a technology guru also a musician and I have to say he's one of, one of my favorite CEOs anywhere just because of the energy that he brings to everything he's, he's working on and and he's uh, had a, a wonderful IPO this year and is uh, really uh, creating a bright future for a lot of people and especially the planet. So tell us a little bit about uh, your board service and your work with Dan. Well, I, I am on the board of Next Tracker, and Next Tracker is uh, the leader really in these tracking devices that allow you to adjust the angle of your solar panels so that you can capture the maximum energy, right? So as the sun tracks from one side of the sky to the other over the course of the day, you know, uh, what the next tracker devices do is they allow the panels to shift their angle, you know, and boy, th these things pay for themselves just by the increased energy that you capture in the process. Now, Dan's very much on this, like, okay, the solar market in the U.S. is 
really booming, right? And we've talked about this. It's like, let's go to local sourcing. And that has been a shift that has come over the last year. I, I know we're sourcing. I know you were just with him in an event in, in Memphis, okay? And we are pulling steel out of you in Arkansas as well as in Pennsylvania. And we talk about this all the time, okay? It's like, well, if you really want to have a lower carbon footprint, first of all, especially your operation in Arkansas, very clean, right? Because uh, it's electric arc, you know? So the American steel industry is, uh, I heard the statistic is the cleanest in the world because of the amount of electric arc and use of scrap, okay? But you you still do have to make virgin metal, you know, from ore in places uh, somewhere. And just doing that in China, you're still going to get CO2 emissions from that, okay? So, uh but Dan has been uh, a big supporter. We talk about who we're using. He, he sings the praises of working uh, with U.S. Steel. I was talking to another manufacturer as well, because I just talked to a lot of manufacturers. I was talking to uh, uh, Independent Can, who was also singing your praises as well. And it's like, wow, you know, there's a second data point that I'm hearing from people in terms of you being more responsive and uh, working hard on your product. So I, I see those as a good thing, but you know, next tracker, we're taking a lot of steel from you guys, you know, so, uh, and much more opportunities to come. We're definitely, we're, we're having some profitable growth and, uh, it is the future. There's no doubt, doubt about it. Renewables and, and let's face it, the breakthroughs are going to be coming with the steel industry. Some of these, you know, difficult to abate industries are all on board with uh, the 2050 target. We're the first in the USA to, to commit to that net zero. We tell there's a heck of a lot of work to get done here. And and we made uh, progress. First lead certified steel uh, company or facility in the United States at Big River. And we continue down the path with responsible steel, working hard on certification. And so we, we've you know, we, we have profitable steel solutions for people and our most important customer now, the planet. So we're pretty excited about that. So I'm going I'm to give you the final word and, and you know, maybe give us some advice at U.S. Steel. Any advice for us as as we as we think about your your great book that you have here and and uh, any advice for us as, as we wrap things up? Well, you know, I've always felt steel is one of those that since it goes into so many other products, right, getting it right is really important. Now, uh, my my advice is like you talk about uh, this uh, decarbonization, this energy transition that's coming, uh, and I know steel is a hard to decarbonize sector. Okay, and uh, it, it, so my advice is kind of in two things. One is this green transition. It's going to be hard for steel. It's going to be expensive, okay, but it's also an opportunity to lead. All right, it, it, uh, if you look at the American steel industry after World War II, I would argue, you know, I mean, the American steel industry was a big part of winning World War II, okay, but we were tended to be slow in the adoption of new technologies and new equipment compared to our competitors, but they had the it's kind of funny to call it an advantage, but they were starting with a clean sheet because all their operations were in ruins, right? So th what they did is they were first on adopting new technologies. When you look at this green transition and you th think about direct reduction iron and how am I going to use hydrogen and 
I'm going to do things like that. They're expensive. They're hard. But every time there's a transition in process technology like that, it becomes an opportunity to lead. Okay. So the IRA and all these incentives uh, are an opportunity to help you lead in those things. Okay. But at the same time, over time, and I don't need to tell you this, right? It's like, those are bridge things which help you, uh, but at the at the other side of that, when those uh, things end, you've got to be good on cost, right? So that's a very tough balancing act, especially where you sit. Okay, but that's what I'd love to see is like you lead on that transition, but you also lead on cost and adoption of new process technologies. You do well, that, you know, and then you got a bright future. Well, we're excited about the future. We believe our best days are ahead. Uh, you know, this digitization, you know, deglobalization, decarbonization, digitization, including AI. We've got partnerships with Google and, and others. And, and we're excited about the potential that we're seeing in that space. But it's a, it's a green world. I think it's got to be a profitably green world as the whole world moves to that. So Dr. Shi, thank you so much for joining us. I enjoyed that. I wish I had more time to talk. You know, it's a busy yeah. time for us. I think you know that. And, uh, and I'm, and uh, frankly, I, I got to get back to work uh, safely. Okay. What, like to what? say for everybody. So you, you be safe as well. Thank you, sir. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me. Steel Stories is brought to you by US Steel. To find out more about our sustainable steel solutions and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for US Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at US Steel, thanks for listening. Yeah.